Friends, welcome to Wrestle Buddies, GameSpot's wrestling podcast filled with friendship, wrestling, and wrestling with friendship. I am your host, none other than Matt Elfring, and with me today, get ready for it, one of my closest Wrestle Buddies, none other than the SmackDown Hacker. SmackDown Hacker, how you doing today? Pretty good. I uh, want to get a security job still, so... If you're uh, hiring for security, preferably if you're hiring at WWE or for Retribution, I'd love to uh, be a part of it. That's great. You're still, you're still really gunning for that, that security job. I'm really proud of you. You really stick to your guns. Yeah, I think, I think uh, this day and age, you got to stick to your guns a little bit. Am I right? I, I guess so. I guess so. Well, SmackDown Hacker, thank you for being here for just the intro. We really appreciate you stopping by, and I'm sure we'll be seeing you again. All right. I guess I'll just do one minute of this show and then leave. This is a very weird moment for you, but thanks, I guess. SmackDown Hacker, everybody. Thank you. You're probably wondering where Chris Hayner is, and before we get to that, I would love for you to rate us and review us on iTunes. Rates and reviews help us jump up in standings and people see our show and more people listen then the show goes on forever that's a weird way to clickbait it in right anyway chris is out sick uh and if you and if you thought smackdown hacker was going to be here the entire time uh boy were you mistaken because that sounds like not fun editing for me wink kayfabe wink anyway uh oh man but i can't intro the show myself um hey smackdown hacker what is on the show today Oh, I, I I guess I'll come back and do this bit before I leave. Uh, it's a very important show today. Uh, Matt has a lot of emails to answer, and he's going to do his best to answer all of them. Uh, also, Matt's been watching 1995 uh, WWF programming like Raw and pay-per-views, and he has figured out uh, that 1995 is doing something better than modern-day wrestling is. And Matt is here to talk about it in a segment that uh, is just has a, a title that is way too long to shorten down. Uh, but the main story, the main segment this week, is uh, is, is Matt's going to talk about uh, Stand Back, the Vince McMahon music video and song, and how we got to uh, the point where Stand Back was a thing. Oh, thank you, SmackDown Hack. I really appreciate that. And you don't want me to hang out anymore? Like, I don't know, like, just kind of sit back and chill? No, you can you can go. You can feel free to go get that job. Get that retribution job. All right. Well, see you later. Smackdown Hacker, ladies and gentlemen, once again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having your voice get more and more um, vaguely Southern as the episodes have gone on. Really appreciate that. Anyway, let's talk about Stand Back. It's a Vince McMahon performance during the 1987 Slammy Awards. It's crazy. It's it's weird. It's wonderful. It's the it's it's bizarre. But before we can talk about what Stand Back is and Vince McMahon's weird live performance that is kind of angry, we need to talk about how we got to Stand Back. How we got to Vince McMahon singing at the Slammies. So let's uh let's take a little bit of a dive into Stand Back the Slammies and Wrestling Albums. So going back to like the 70s and 80s, mainly the 80s, uh, when WWF broke free of that kind of territorial wrestling that we all 
uh, are vaguely familiar with. You know, it's a thing that hasn't existed for 30 years, really. Uh, Vince McMahon wanted to take WWF uh, and make it something bigger, you know, throwing celebrities into the mix, mixing in musicians. He wanted to have mainstream eyes on a nationwide company, uh, which would eventually become a global company. So the idea of rock and roll wrestling is what helped bring more eyes to this product. You know, people you wouldn't typically associate with wrestling started appearing in wrestling. And kind of the most famous earliest example of this was that Captain Lou Albano, the WWF manager, met musician Cindy Lauper in Puerto Rico. And then they became friends and Lauper had Albano in her music video, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And because of that new relationship with Lou Albano appearing on MTV and in the MTV world, uh, Lauper appeared on WWF programming and this kind of rock and roll connection was in full swing. So to really hammer home WWF and rock and roll, they decided to put out an album. They being WWF, Vince McMahon, everybody up, you know, the heads, the people behind the scenes. So they brought on Rick Derringer to work with WWF to produce this album featuring featuring wrestling stars uh, singing, uh, performing. And uh, this was alongside David Wolfe serving as executive producer, who was Lopper's manager and then boyfriend at the time. Now, Derringer in the world of wrestling is best known for writing the song Real American, which eventually became Hogan's theme song. It's I'd say it's the most iconic song or theme song, entrance song, anything in wrestling history. I mean, pomp and circumstance was already a thing before Macho Man took it over. Real American is, you hear that, you're like, oh, Hulk Hogan, a mainstream average human being. When I say average, I mean, person that doesn't watch wrestling could hear Real American right now. And, you know, more times, you know, nine out of 10 times, probably going to say that's Hulk Hogan's theme music or associate that song with Hulk Hogan or associate it with WWF. So also on this album is a, call, a song called Hulk Hogan's Theme, and that was originally used in the animated series Hulk Hogan's Rockin' Wrestling, which, by the way, none of the wrestlers voice any of the characters on that show. It's all voice actors. Lots of the songs feature wrestlers talking over music. Wrestlers famous for that time, kind of the biggest names, including Hillbilly Jim. Here's where it gets really, really weird and something that I didn't realize until I was going into this. The 1986 was the very first Slammy Awards and the Slammys for a long time were WWF just giving awards to wrestlers for various things. There's obviously best wrestler, best tag team, best uh, woman wrestler, things like that. But there's also weird things like LOL moment of the year, like most embarrassing moment, best one liner said from a good guy to a bad guy. You know, there's a a myriad of different weird uh, categories that someone can win an award for. So the thing about the Slammys was it was literally created for the sole purpose to commemorate the release of this album called the wrestling album. Out of all the things you can call a kind of uh, hodgepodge <laughs> musical album of wrestlers talking over uh, music, the wrestling album. So the, the track listing on this is the first, uh, there's the first song by just a bunch of wrestlers called Land of a Thousand Dances, which is a cover and it's a very bad song. 
There's Junkyard Dog with Vicky Sue Robinson playing uh, Grab Them Cakes, which is a weird 1981 Captain Chameleon song. Uh, it's just so weird. Uh, there's Rick Derringer, Real American. Uh, there's Jimmy Hart singing Eat Your Heart Out, Rick Springfield, which actually, like, Jimmy Hart's pretty good. You can watch the music. I think it's a music video for this. Pretty sure it's a music video. And he's pretty fantastic in it. There's Captain Lou Albano and George Animal Steel with the song Captain Lou's History of Music slash Captain Lou. There are, uh, there's the WWF All-Stars singing Hulk Hogan's theme. Uh, Roddy Roddy Piper singing the song For Everybody, which we will get to in a second because that's a whole screwed up thing. There's Mean Gene Okerlund singing Tutti Frutti. Yes, the song Tutti Frutti. Hillbilly Jim singing Don't Go Messing With The Country Boy and Nikolai Volkov singing Karamia. Karamia? Karamia? Whatever. So the Slimmy Awards have been created to commemorate the release of this album and they have given away six awards. There is the best single performer, which Junkyard Dog won. Uh, Jimmy Hart should have won, in my opinion, after hearing all these songs, but whatever. Best producer went to Mona Flambe, which is Cindy Lauper. Best commentator, which is the only non. It's the only award in the 1986 Slammys that doesn't deal directly with the album. But best commentator went to Mean Gene Okerlund. Uh, best personality in the Land of a Thousand Dances music video was Roddy Piper. And most ignanimous was Nikolai Volkov. And Volkov was up against some incredible other nominees in this category, including no one else. It was just him. He was the only one. So the 1986 Slammys have come and gone. Uh, but the one thing I want to focus on with this first, the wrestling album album, is, the, is Roddy Piper's For Everyone. For Everybody. Sorry. Now, this is actually a cover of the Mike, Mike Angelo and the Idol song, The World May Not Like Me. And it was kind of re-stamped as for everybody because the chorus of this song that Roddy Piper and Mike Angelo and the Idols is singing is F everybody. F-U-C-K. That doesn't count as a swear, does it? I just spelled it out. It's F everybody. That's the chorus of the song. It's not a bad song for its time. It's super weird. Uh, but by the way, so it's restamped for everybody for Roddy Roddy Piper on the album. But if you listen to it, Roddy Piper is totally saying a swear word during the chorus. It's it has not been changed. There may be backup singers saying for everybody. Roddy Piper is definitely saying F everybody. So a year goes by. Roughly a year. There is a follow up album release called Pile Driver, the wrestling album two. I put two fingers up that you can't see. So this one featured more songs with wrestlers talking over. Um, and this is where we finally get stand back by Vince McMahon at the time. This, I don't remember this album. I remember the first album and I remember the album after this WrestleMania, the album pile driver was the one that went under the radar for me and a lot of my friends that were into wrestling at the time. That is until uh, a, until a, the 1987 Slammys, which were a year and a half after the 86 Slammys. This happens in December now, December 1987. Once again, WWF is commemorating the release of an album with Piledriver. Uh, everybody performs their songs during, not everybody, almost everybody performs their songs from the album at the Slammys live on stage. This also includes Stand Back, 
sung by Vince McMahon. I will have this video posted on our Twitter. That's at WrestleBuddies. Please watch it. Uh, we'll have it on site at GameSpot as well. It is so weird and bizarre, and I really want you to watch it. So let me set the stage. There is some fine... How do I explain the music that, like, this album is trying to just get a stranglehold on? Like, it's almost like cheesy 70s Vegas music. I always felt like when it came to music, WWF was 10 years behind what was actually happening. I always felt like that. Anytime I hear an entrance song, I'm like, that would have been great 10 to 20 years ago. Like, I would have listened to that song back then. Until you hear it like 8 million times and then you're finding yourself singing Alter Bridge in 2020. Anyway, so it's kind of just trying to get in its foot in the door with this big band, semi-disco, musical, Bronson, Missouri, Branson, Missouri uh, type of feel. And there's a whole cavalcade of wrestlers playing instruments on the stage. The very first front and center, well, back and center, is none other than Hulk Hogan, a slap in the bass. And he's, the first time I saw him slap in the bass, I was like, is he actually like trying to play? Or is he like really playing this song? Like, or he's just good at miming? I do want to know if Hulk Hogan knows how to play some bass. He looks like a dude who like, he might have some experience in that. And we've got Junkyard Dog and some other guys playing saxophone, saxophone, Featured in this song. Also, the bassist featured saxophone is also featured. These two instruments are being played while the song is playing. Now, we get to George G. Animal Steel on tambourine. Something I don't hear in the song, but it's really weird. He's just kind of shoved in the background like, hey, just go, buddy. Then we have Randy Savage, Jake the Snake Roberts, and someone else who I'm not sure of um, playing trumpet. Trumpet is... I, I don't hear trumpet. I only hear saxophone. And we, again, there's, there's Hogan right in the background. Uh, I like to make the joke a little bit of a joke. Cause I used to play, I used to play bass in some music bands way back when uh, this is the only time in the history of music, a bassist has been center stage. Uh, please everybody no Getty Lee uh, comments or, or yellings at me. These are bassist jokes. Anyway. So there's this, there's a bunch of women in in uh, poofy uh, dresses, very for the time of you know mid to early eight. Oh, this is mid late mid to late eighties, and out comes Vince McMahon in a in a buttoned up shirt with with a very disco esque lapel, like a big lapel, like there's some big lapels going on here, and the attitude that he is portraying during this is just. It's so much the precursor to Attitude Era events. He, he's got the strut. His voice, like, gets that gravel in it. You know, he's, he'll be talking, he'll be singing. He's, what a rush. <laughs> so the, the women are around him. They're, they're, they're touching his shoulders because Vince is a man that uh, dances around ladies, apparently. It's choreographed dancing. It's, it's cheesy. It's, it's very cringy. Or as the kids would say, cringe, I think. Hit me up. Let me know what you say. Uh, so the one thing I will note compared to the studio version is that this version, the video I will be posting online, 
it's it's live. He's singing this. I believe he's singing it during this because the vocals and the music are completely different. Or they're they're very much different from the studio album. Uh, the live performance is sped up a little bit. It's got a little bit more of a zing, a little bit more kick, and a lot more bad dancing. Now, if you're wondering about the quality of lyric for Stand Back, uh, I'd like to do some sort of dramatic reading. I mean, I'm not going to go full WrestlePiece Theater on this. Uh, I would like to do some kind of dramatic reading just to give you an idea of what this man is singing. Because also, when he's singing, he mumbles the he jargons and jumbles and mumbles everything together sometimes, much like I do on this show. And so I had to actually spend a few times getting some lines to like listening to the same thing over and over and over again. Like, what is he actually saying? So just for, for you, the audience at home, here's, here are the lyrics um, with some classy background music. I was just a boy. Everybody told me what should I do and who should I be? I got some advice I finally have to say, stand back. Stand back. They never understood the kind of man I am. I do my own thinking. Got a lot of big plans. Stand back. Stand back. For all of you who want to bring me down, I have news. Stand in my way. I promise you'll lose. Stand back. Stand back. I will never ever be just an ordinary guy. I will always push harder, reaching for the sky. Stand back. Stand back. That's a fact. I am running wild, headed for the top, never slowing down, never gonna stop. Along the way, you're going to see a lot of men drop. Baby, watch them drop. Baby, baby, baby. Stand back. And then there's a one minute outro. Kind of weird. Kind of weird. Kind of a weird lyric song. There's a lyrical content is bizarre to me. It is. um. I don't like did Vince write this or did he do this with Derringer or. It's mostly about like, I'm going to be the best at everything. Get out of my way or I will crush you. Which to me, when you hear stories about Vince on or, or think about his character on TV, this doesn't seem too out of place when you look at, you know, I'm going to watch the guys drop. I'm, I'm a man running wild headed for the top. You were already at the top at that point, though. Never slowing down. Never going to stop. That's true. I mean, you are. God, like 80 something still running gorilla along the way. You're going to see a lot of men drop baby. Watch it. That's so weird. That is such a weird lyric along the way. You're going to see a lot of men drop. And I mean that like in a, like he's just going to step on the backs of people to get where he's going, which if I'm reading that correctly, as it was intended, like screw you, I'm in it for myself. I do not care about the people I heard along the way. I got some problems with that. Baby, watch him drop. Baby, 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 baby. Anyway, 
So after this, as mentioned, uh, WWF did release some albums throughout the years. There was metal. There was uh, my favorite is WrestleMania, the album. And it's mainly because big boss man's theme is on big boss man's theme is on there. Bret Hart's never, never a good time to say goodbye to Tonka Buffalo. I don't know the actual title of that one. That's a solid album. WrestleMania, the album might be the best out of those. It's just such a weird moment in WWF's history when they were putting together these wrestling albums and really trying to get mainstream attention. And none of these albums did well. I mean, none of the, none of the singles from what I were, from when I was researching this made any radio play at all. There was no radio play, but at the same time, why do you need radio play when you have a weekly television show or like 50 weekly television shows? <laughs> At that time, I think it was like two. It was like probably like Saturday Night Main Event and Superstars. I don't remember. It's a very weird place in in the history of WWF. And one of, it's not even one of the most memorable things Vince has done. It's not even the most infamous thing Vince has done on television. Think about that for a second. He did a, a, a Las Vegas. I'm going to, oh, I'll go back to Branson. A Branson, Missouri, like stage show song talking about how he's going to crush people along his way to get to the top. That That's not the weirdest thing he's done. This thing got pretty negative about Vince. I didn't mean to that. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just looking, I'm just looking into the lyrics of this man. Stand back is weird. All right. As you guys know, I have been watching as much WWF programming from 1995 as I can many people have stated over the years that 1995 is the worst year for WWF programming uh they had some great talent it was the new generation you've got Diesel making big waves Razor Ramones there one two three kid HBK uh Hunter Hearst Helmsley I'll just mention all of the click uh Jeff Jarrett is there I could keep going there's a lot of Bret Hart's still there. Owen Hart's still there. Sorry. I guess I, there's so much good talent in WWF at that time. Booking was not great. There's a lot of things about the era that aren't great. It's, it's a holdover transitional phase between attitude era and the golden era. It's WWF trying to find its voice again, but there is one thing I noticed that WWF did really, really good when it came to 1995 compared to now. And that's how they booked pay-per-view events. When we think about booking pay-per-views now and how storylines go in wrestling, uh, first and foremost, and this is just how it is now. And that's, that's fine with me, but there is this need and this want within wrestling fans that every pay-per-view match has to have a story behind it. And I used to think that way, but I also kind of hate that thought that mindset. I hate it because there's not enough programming time on weekly television to build stories between every single one of these matches while also giving time to other people on the roster. Cause the roster is at WWF. Uh, it's just too much. There's so many people in WWF wrestling. Uh, there's so many people on the roster and not everybody can get that stage time. But you look at this larger idea that everything needs a story. And, and as a fan 
when I used to watch boxing, I used to watch MMA. Every match that you watch has some sort of story. And it's usually the editors that make that story. The people doing the interviews make that story up there. There isn't a story of like Anderson Silva is like someone came and stole my wife and now I've got to get revenge on you. Kenny Florian, I'm naming people that are retired in different way classes. <laughs> so you, there, there's no, there's no grand story like that. Usually the story is nothing more than I'm a contender. And I think I have what it takes to be champion. And the champion says, I am a dominant champion. You are not a worthy contender. And outside of championship matches, the story can just be like, we're both hungry to be a contender. Uh, we're both here to, prove that we belong here. Those are the main storylines for every boxing and MMA match. Uh, or sometimes, and very, very often there is, and it's usually revolving around Conor McGregor, uh, the person he is fighting. The storyline is, I want to shut this guy up from talking. He talks to you talk too much. Uh, that's usually, you know, that's a, that's another story. And they, they're simple. They're so simple storylines because they come from real life because this is real life. You know, MMA for the most part is real life. I tend to think that McGregor is much more WWE than he is UFC. He's a great UFC fighter, but he has that WWE mentality to kind of make people listen, make people pay attention. I paid for a Floyd Mayweather boxing match between him and McGregor. And I didn't even care. Like I, I didn't, I shouldn't have paid for it. I didn't want to watch it. But the lead in the lead in to it was so great because of just how great McGregor was on the mic and Mayweather too. That was, Oh man, this is, we've gotten way off track within what I just said. You can have very, very simple storylines that can be built by commentators that don't need to eat up a immense amount of TV time every week, just by having uh, one or two wrestlers, you know, are going to face each other in a pay-per-view having them go through the ranks and then having to eventually face each other. Uh, sometimes by sometimes, I mean, a lot of times WWE will spend a significant portion of television programming, um, really spending, giving wrestlers too large of a segment that doesn't really need to build the story too much. I would say right now, the only person to me, eh, there's a couple of people. There's two people, the two people that to me that really deserve and have earned that TV time to really develop and uh, give us a fuller, more floral story is Roman Reigns and the Usos. And then I would say Bray Wyatt and Alexa Bliss, which is weird because they're just kind of doing their own thing. Um, I know, I know retribution's doing their thing, but like those two people that I just mentioned, well, Usos and Uso slash Reigns and then the Fiend and Fiend S. They've kind of earned that right to kind of fully tell a story a little bit longer than our people. But for everybody else, like Retribution, I we know how Chris feels about Retribution. I like Re Retribution, the fact that it's <laughs> I'm so angry at WWF. I'm going to trash the place until they give me a job like that. That storyline's so bad. but. The idea of them having to be somebody that proves themselves and take on anybody to display their dominance. That's a good story. You cut out the whole, like we hate WWE stuff. 
it's fine. If you want to make it, we're going to change the business because of how good we are. That's great too. But you don't need a lot of time to do that. You can have commentators build that storyline up while you're in the ring. Uh, actually, Hurt Business has really earned the time to, to do whatever they want story-wise. I know that uh, this is just a a Hurt Business fanboy show at this point, but MVP is great at talking. I love seeing what he's what he's doing with these wrestlers who haven't found their place. I think is the best way to put it. They haven't found that like the, they haven't found that section in WWE or that story in WWE where they thrive and her business is kind of them thriving, which is great. But again, theirs is their whole storyline is we're proving to you. We're the best. That's it. And they're kind of in the, the realm of like, we're changing the name of the game because of how great we are. That's all you need for stories. So you don't need a lot to spend a lot of time. Not as much as I've spent talking about it. So then we, we see these wrestlers always face each other either in singles or triple threats or tags. They are constantly fighting in the ring or outside of the ring until the pay-per-view when they get a singles match. There is never anticipate, never. There's not anticipation being built isn't a thing anymore. It, It feels like it's, a lost art. We were getting to see the pay-per-view match, you know, three weeks prior on raw. So what makes me want to watch that pay-per-view match? If we're getting that match three weeks prior, two weeks prior, one week prior, they're constantly in each other's faces. And here's something I'm going to say that is going to sound ridiculous. Bam, bam, Bigelow versus Lawrence Taylor at WrestleMania. Uh, was it 11 95 WrestleMania 95 was built up pretty dang well uh it started with the was this royal rumble i can't remember anymore i believe it was royal rumble where there was a confrontation between bam bam bigelow and lawrence taylor from then on uh bam bigelow was then suspended for that and then uh there was via satellite bam bigelow kind of came in he was supposed to apologize to lawrence taylor and there was a lot of back and forth between them, but they but they didn't fight each other, unless I'm missing something that I've forgotten about. I have extensive notes from 1995, and I don't believe they ever faced each other. Uh, again, I've watched a lot of WWF from 95, so it's kind of hard. Everything blends together at some point. So you never get these guys actually fighting each other until WrestleMania. There's a lot of anticipation built for this match, and it was built very well. I think you have to do a lot of building with something like a sports star coming in, but regardless, it was great. Uh, at the same time, there was a lot of bad booking and building of matches, uh, especially with Jerry Lawler and Bret Hart in the kiss my foot match where the loser had to kiss someone's foot and they spent weeks. Jerry Lawler spent weeks talking about his feet and how he hadn't bathed them. Uh, in I think it was over two months. He hadn't washed his feet. And how it's going to be awful for Brett. And all I could think of was like, it's probably over for you, dude. You haven't washed your feet like in weeks. That's going to smell bad in your house, in your shoes. You're ruining shoes, man. That snake ain't coming out anyway. And he, then he, Jerry Lawler had rubber feet on the commentating table. He's like, these are my feet look like, oh, they've got corns and bunions. I'm like, that's more than just a hygiene problem, man. You've got some serious stuff going on. Get tested for gout. Your feet, your feet are wrong. So what WWF did well was kind of the build, the anticipation. We had um, 
Bertha Ray and Alundra Blaze had a quote unquote storyline between each other, which lasted over the course of like six months. And there was like three meetings between them. But it was kind of something you kept in the back of your mind, like, I, I can't wait for these two to face each other again, but we're not going to see it for months. You you can't do that now with any superstar man or woman because uh, people will forget about a wrestler three weeks later if they're not on TV. That's the other kind of issue we, we have. We do live in a society and culture now that's gimme, gimme, gimme now, now, now. So I understand why WWE is trying to book quickly and not do long form stories. Um but another thing that WWF did very, very well within the booking and building of these storylines towards pay-per-views is putting everybody up against local talent. Now, back then, you could do that. You, you could put Savio Vega up against, you know, Brooklyn Brawler. You could put Haikushi up against Matt Hardy. Well, this is a Matt Hardy that's like a 16-year-old boy Matt Hardy. <laughs> Or 16-year-old Jeff Hardy boy. You can do that. You can do that enhancement talent. I, I just feel like that's I, that's that went away. Enhancement talent kind of went away during Attitude Era. I think it's something you could maybe bring back. The only issue is... I mean, there isn't an issue. They still use enhancement talent from here on occasion. I think it's still something you can put on television a couple nights a week. I mean, you remember when... What was it? Nia Jax first came over. She was crushing enhancement talent. When Braun Strowman first went singles star, crushing enhancement talent. Uh, I believe the first person he beat was uh, James Ellsworth. My memory serves correct. You, But you can kind of figure out a way to build characters by having them look extremely dominant against other people. Uh, and not just calling Dolph Ziggler, Ziggler a jobber, jobber like, you know, every jerk on the internet is. You can you can find other ways to go about this by by building up a wrestler, by making them look more powerful. So when they get to the story, when they get to that pay-per-view storyline, that pay-per-view match, you know, you're wondering who's going to win because WWF spent so much time looking both of them, making both of them look powerful. Because right now, booking up into a pay-per-view is I'm assuming they're still doing the 50-50 booking. I haven't been really keeping track. And that's just like you get a win, then I get a win. You get a win, then I get a win. It's a draw. Well, the pay-per-view is going to settle it. That's boring. You can do that. That's great to do on occasion. That can't be every to every time, every story. Wrestlers need to be, that are in a storyline together, if they're doing matches, need to be separate. They need to be separate and they need to be built up to look stronger leading into that pay-per-view match. <laughs> they just hit my thing. Leading into that pay-per-view match, they both need to look like they could destroy the other person. So you're kind of like, you're really kind of getting invested, like, oh man, who's going to win? Because they both look so great against enhancement talent George. But you get what I'm saying, I hope. <laughs> that booking needs to, to elevate a superstar and not just make it look like it's going to be a constant draw. I will say, kind of going back to the original thesis of this, the hypothesis, sorry, I, I do believe 95 booking as a whole at this point, at that point in time, does better than what WWE does now. I know that's, and I, again, this is a crazy statement. I know it's a little nuts to think that the worst year of WWF is, but was booking in general better than now. But that's only because of the culture of wrestling back then and what you were allowed to do. 
I, I think you can take elements from back from 95 and apply them today. I think you can bring back enhancement talent in some way. I think you can get rid of 50, 50 booking. I think it's very easy to keep wrestlers away from each other up until the pay-per-view. I think storylines can be super simplified, uh, to make room for other wrestlers. And, uh, I do think that not every pay-per-view match needs the most in-depth story of all time. Again, it can really be, I want to be a number one contender. You're not good enough to be number one contender. I am number one contender. That's a story. I got to prove to boss that I'm a good at the job. I don't know why that went like weird pizza owner, pizza restaurant owner, Matt Elfring, pizza restaurant owner. I'm a good at the job. I'm good at Java, the hut. Anyway, that's it. That's all I got for you. 95 has put me in a weird spot mentally with wrestling where I am constantly comparing it to the landscape of WWF right now, WWE right now. And it is two opposite sides of one very heavy coin. That's the best way to put it. Anyway, let's get to the mailbag. As you can see, things are wrapping up a little bit shorter than normal, but when it's one man talking and the other man's gone, that means it's half the amount of episodes. So this episode probably would have been close to an hour and a half. And I would have been disappointed with myself because hour and a half episode is a lot to edit. Anyway, let's go to that mailbag. Boom, boom, boom. This is the new music. This was me scrolling down. Hey, this one comes from D9000, old, old friend, old friend D9000, supported my first wrestling podcast. Thanks. He asks us, hey, buds, how was your Thanksgiving? What did you eat? Well, D9000 is uh, from Canada. They celebrate Thanksgiving uh, October 1st. Uh, it's usually, I used to eat dinner with my family on October 1st. My, uh, my mom would always have like Canadian Thanksgiving October 1st and we get um, regular Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving. Is it October 1st or the first? Whatever. I don't remember when Canadian Thanksgiving is. Hey, uh, Matt in the editing process, just jumping in. Canadian Thanksgiving's the second Monday of October. Yeah. I kept wanting to say it's, oh, it's a Monday. It's the second Monday though. So I'm wrong because I don't celebrate Canadian Thanksgiving that often anymore. So sorry. Um, so for, for this Thanksgiving, uh, I can't answer for Chris. I'm sure he ate the same stuff. Uh, I had some turkey. I had some mashed potatoes. I had some sweet potatoes. I had a lot of sweet potatoes. Sweet potatoes are my jam, guys. Uh, I uh, put gravy on, and I tried not to overeat, but the food was very good. Uh, we were at my in-laws. It was not a big deal, like a lot of people. It was, you know, myself, my wife, our son, and her parents. That's it. Like... And my wife works with my father-in-law, so it's not like we're coming from different worlds where we're bringing in the virus. Uh, it was good dinner, though. And then, like, this what? let me think. And then Sunday, so this was a couple days ago. It was Saturday I did it. I don't remember. Um, I smoked a turkey for my first time because uh, I'm going to be doing a smoked turkey chili. Um, I usually do a vegetarian chili, but we wanted to try something different. Uh, so I smoked my very first Turkey for the first time and it came it turned out really, really well. Um, I usually smoke a lot of pork products. Pork's kind of my go-to on the smoker, um, baby back ribs and pork, butt. my pulled pork's very good. 
just talking about my food. I cook a lot, guys. You have no idea. Uh, so I smoked my first turkey. It tasted really, really good. So we just kind of I carved that up the other day and going to uh, do some turkey chili. We're doing it backwards, though, because the turkey's already cooked. But that's fine. Anyway, thank you for the question. Hey, Land Pitts says, uh, favorite title design and why is it the European Championship? Let me tell you something about the European Championship. When D'Lo Brown had that, D'Lo Brown was my guy. Like, when I was a teenager, I loved D'Lo Brown. It might have just been a Chicago thing. Like, he's from Chicago. Uh, I love when he had that vest on. Uh, that was laced with the flight jacket with the metal in it that would, like, his frog splash would hurt people more. God, I love wrestling. Um, I do love the European championship. The WCW TV title is something design wise. I love, at least I remember loving it. I haven't looked at it recently, Um, but I think I'm always going to be a sucker for like a weird intercontinental championship. Like the one with like the mint belt background or the white belt background. Yellow. I always like the weird colors on that one. I always like, kind of gravitated towards that. And even though it's kind of the most attitude era thing of all time, there's like a weird special place in my heart for the women's championship from that era. Like I know it just says like women's championship and giant ugly lettering, but I think it's such like, it's like rose colored glasses. I look at that and I'm just like, yeah, man, like my childhood, Trish Stratus, Lita and a bunch of other wrestlers. <laughs> I'll throw Ivory in there. You got to throw one of the glow girls in, right? Anyway, Lan, thank you for that, and I will uh, see you at work tomorrow because we work together. Oh, here's some questions. Chris Hainer asks, <laughs> hey, buddy, uh, what is your favorite Charles Wright? Now, when we started this podcast, there was a segment that was going to be ongoing that was just about Charles Wright's gimmicks, and we started with The Good Father, which I don't know if that's my favorite, and because I've been watching a lot of 1995 wrestling, I'm right in the middle of a uh, comma, the fighting machines run uh, where he turned the undertaker's urn into gold chains, uh, MMA heavy gimmick. That was his second major gimmick with the WWE after Papa Shango. And right before he joined nation of domination is common Mustafa. The God, the Godfather has never been one of my favorites. And like, I remember when I got back into wrestling pretty hardcore after taking like a little bit of a break during ruthless aggression. And then like not, I looked back on like Godfather and I hated it. I was just like, Oh, it's like, it's gross. It's demeaning. But now looking back, like I don't hate it as much. I think it's still a little gross, but that's mostly because of the audience, <laughs> like what the audience was wanting. I think, I think good father w- was so ahead of its time, but that's mostly because of right to censor. And I feel like Godfather really rolled with that that gimmick extremely well. But I might just go Papa Shango. I don't know. I've always like I, I always think about I think about Charles Wright gimmicks a lot, and I think I always just go right to Papa Shango as the best one, as my favorite, I should say. The best might be. The best gimmick is probably Godfather. I hate to say it, because that's the one that resonated the most. But my favorite is definitely Papa Shango. Thanks, Chris. Oh, oh, Chris Hayner also had one more question. Your favorite Jeff Hardy match. I don't road to glory. Um, man, I just, I like Jeff Hardy. I just don't, I think it's just a lot of cringiness too. Like when I see him now, I just get kind of cringy about it. I think it's the, 
just the embodiment of like weird things about the nineties in my teenagers. I didn't like, and then he's still doing it. And it kind of just weirds me out anyway. Uh, TLC match. I don't know. Like I don't have a singles Jeff Hardy. He still does great work. Like he puts on matches. I still want to watch. I'm still like, like when I'm watching them, I'm like, man, he still got it. He's still great. I just don't get excited for Jeff Hardy. I don't think I ever have. Maybe when the Hardy boys were together, I got much more excited for like Matt Hardy when he's doing version one. So best Jeff Hardy match. I don't know. TLC. Put him on the Hardy boys. Whatever. I don't have one. I'm sorry. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week for wrestle buddies. Thank you for tuning in. We will be back next week with hopefully someone else. Chris might be here. Maybe we'll have a, a guest. Couldn't procure a guest. That's okay. Thank you for listening. Love you all. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening to Russell Buddies. We hope you had at least almost as much fun as we did. Go ahead and rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app. You can email us questions at WrestleBuddies at GameSpot.com or find us over on Twitter at WrestleBuddies. I am at Chris Hayner. He is at I'm Matt Elfring. See you next week.